What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Hey guys, Cole here, producer for the Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Just taking a minute out of your day to tell you about BH Bicycles, family-owned Spanish bike company, been around since 1909. Never been bought, never been sold, never been bankrupt like a lot of the companies these days. They just make badass bikes without any pretentiousness. They've got a couple road offerings, the G7, the Ultralight, which I own. It's awesome. They've got mountain bikes. They've got cyclocross bikes. And they just came out with a gravel offering, the new Gravel X. Head to bhbikesusa.com. Check it out. Like I said, I own one. I love it. I can't wait to take it to Belgium. It's fantastic. bhbikesusa.com. And now, this week's episode of the Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is a longtime friend, a virtual friend of mine named Bill Swank from uh, Lime Systems <laughs> as a suburb of Philadelphia. And Bill and I met oh, probably four years ago. We were doing sales training virtually over the phone from a program that we were both subscribed to. And our weekly Thursday 4.30 phone calls have continued since then because uh, I think I admire Bill. I think he's a smart guy and um, he's my friend. With that, I just want to say welcome to Bill Swank. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, how long have we been doing this? I was trying to think about when I was at the managed services firm and was that four years ago when we first started actually it's trying to sell each other? Maybe. Yeah, may very well be. It's been, I mean, time just flies so fast, but four years wouldn't, it's definitely three and four would not surprise me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, we, we uh, kind of started, you know, we, and we bounced a lot of emails back and forth for a year and there, but the nice thing is they've been all business related. And, you know, one of the things I've always looked at is to take those emails and, and create a, a book out of them because it's, there's a lot of great content there. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the end. Well, and I've always relied on you. So yeah, for, it's, been, it's been, it's been a while. Yeah. I've always relied on you for sales advice and even now being in the bike industry and out of the technology space, you just have a, a mind for this stuff. And I know <laughs> in my mind, you're kind of a sales gangster. Like some of the stories you've told me about. Oh, your <laughs> um, Matt, I'm a novice compared to you, man. <laughs> you're more dyed in the wool. I'm just kind of struggling through it. <laughs> making it up as I go, taking your guidance and trying to make sense of it all. <laughs> well, so you're saying neither one of us know what we're doing. Is that, is that the case? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you shared some awesome stuff. I mean, you know, you shared, you shared your, you know, at the beginning, you shared your call scripts or your call kind of premise and, and some of your outlines that I still have. And I mean, just, you know, it's just awesome. Right. <laughs> it just, you know, you, you you hit the numbers, major metrics, and just cranked it out on a pretty consistent basis, week after week, uh, you know, over and over again. And that's what's required. <laughs> well, you know, a funny story about that call script is that um, just for the, the listeners, Bill and I had in both of our companies, we had goals of trying to hit 50 dials per day so that the phones would dial outbound 50 dials per day. And that would translate into, 
I don't know, maybe 10 conversations, maybe three conversations and one appointment. And I had shared this nugget with Bill and I'll share with the audience is that the very most effective call script I ever had was calling somebody up and saying, Hey, our companies do business with, you know, company X, Y, Z. And I met this person at a networking function and they thought that our companies might do business together. I didn't know if you were the right person, but I wanted to start that conversation. And I was telling this to somebody that was outside of sales a couple of years ago. And she just looked at me and she goes, so you lie to these people? And I'm like, no, it's BS. <laughs> but it was, you know, but, but, but not, uh, <laughs> but Matt, I mean, you know, to, to back up a little bit, right? It's, this, the word script is bad. So I hate yes. that term because yeah. the thing you shared with me, I don't read verbatim, it's concepts. But the thing that I did, because I don't like to lie to people, I want to make certain that we start off on the right foot, is what I actually did is I actually printed out the list of prospects I was going to call for that week. I took them to the network meeting that I was at that week and gave it to somebody at, who I was sitting with and said, hey, do you think it makes a good good sense for me to call these people they would look at the list and say oh yeah this is this is awesome yeah you should really talk to them Done. hey i know that person i can get you connected <laughs> so yeah and that's what i've always liked about you is you just have this um you know <laughs> uncompromising moral character. Whereas like, I didn't care. <laughs> I'll just be candid about that. Like I just didn't care because at the end of the day, I knew that I could help these customers. And, but that was my rule. Once I got in the door, it was absolute hundred percent truth from that minute on. But however I got in front of them, that was just, it was the, the bit, it was the pickup line. Right. Yep. Yeah. But she was baffled. She's like, you, what if they, what if they ask you where you met them or what networking function? And then I would just sort of shuffle some papers and go, Hey, you know, I got to admit, you know, it was at a Denver sports team in season, you know, so whether that was the Rockies or the Broncos or the avalanche or the nuggets and say, right. yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I had a beer and I wrote down on a napkin and, uh, you know, I could look tonight if you really want to know Like, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. I've done that. I've actually used that a few times too. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, you, you, uh, I like, I like how you have to have an element of truth or not element. You have to have the truth in everything you do. So I definitely wanted to compliment you on that. Um, Give us a little bit of insight into Lime Systems, and for the uh, for the the audience, you know, I used to work in IT and sold security systems, backup, and stuff like that, and that's still your space. But give us a little uh, framework of what Lime Systems does in the context, kind of for the rest of this conversation. Uh, sure. I mean, we, you know, uh, the, for better or for worse, the company started at the practically the dawn of the internet age, right? If you can believe that there was a time before the internet, the company started 
about the time that there was an internet, right? And so we've, you know, we started doing a lot of software development, uh, just a lot. And then in, um, and, did, and was somewhat successful at it, but, uh, you know, and, uh, but in 2008, everyone went from, you know, the software development and we were doing large scale applications, right? Large scale web apps. Um, and in 2008, uh, with the economy, you know, it was just frightening because we'd go to our clients and we could hear the, the wind whistling through their empty offices because they'd laid everybody off. As they told us, they had, they, they were moving from, you know, wants, which is software development, which to needs, which is trying to keep everything, the lights on and, and keep the money flowing, which wasn't happening. So they started ask, they started looking at, at what we did and we had a, we had built a out a, uh, a data set, a private data center at the time, and we had a lot of their web apps running, and they were just confused about how their web apps were much more stable than their equipment in their office. And so they asked us to apply the same set of principles to managing their servers, uh, which we did. And then they said, well, you know, now, now we need our network to be just as reliable as the servers. So we did that. And then they said, we might as well do the workstation because, you know, uh, employee time is very valuable. And so we applied the same principles and we ended up applying that principle, those principles across all of the technology at a company, you know, and anything that has a, a bit or a bite in it is what we view as technology. Technology. It doesn't really matter what it is. Um, and so, but is what has happened to us. And, and so we, we do that very well and have a, a really good uh, client, um, you know, pretty active client base uh, at that, uh, at that level. Uh, but is what's happened to us over the last, um, you know, roughly over the last uh, six to seven months is, you know, I've, I've looked at what we've done for our recent clients and prospects and the CEOs and CFOs that we connect with really like our approach to protecting their companies, protecting their organization from all kinds of bad things. And so because I'm a former, you know, CFO, we talk the same language when you get down to it. And it's a completely different language than technology teams tend to talk about. And so these days we've kind of done a pivot to really focus on protecting the company, you know, from all kinds of bad things, whether it's, and we protect money, we protect time, we protect employees, uh, protect families, protect uh, income. Uh, we've really, you know, worked very, very hard to come up with a way of protecting those things that are important to people. And some of that is cybersecurity, but some of it is physical security as well. Um, but it's a completely different approach than, um, than what's currently being done. And it's an approach that is successful. And, you know, our current, uh, our, our legacy clients uh, really love it. And current clients really appreciate the dialogue and our prospects really like the approach as well. So it's just been an awesome pivot that we've taken, we've undertaken. Well, and I remember during our, our sessions back when I was in that same space that it was the procedures and uh, you had shared some of your onboarding procedures with me when you landed a new client and it was one of the most comprehensive things I'd ever seen. It reminded me of my engineering days when it was a standard operating procedure and it was yep. impressive. And, you know, one of the things I borrowed from you was the predictable, repeatable performance 
because if your if your network, if your apps, if your system doesn't work, then you notice your technology. And if you notice your technology, then something's going on. And it was just mind blowing to see the scope and depth and detail and thought that went into what you created there and still obviously utilize today. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of our CEO clients, you know, basically said something I'll never forget, uh, you know, as she was complimenting us on some of the things we did, she said, great technology is, is, uh, used, but never seen and, uh, never heard right at the end of the day, it just works and is predictable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely correct. We've, we have really worked very hard to manage and wrangle the complexity um, of what we do, which is just the complexity is just in, in this industry is just crazy. And we've really worked very hard to wrangle that complexity to create something predictable. And one of our culture items is really no surprises. Uh, I mean, when, uh, when I was a CFO, occasionally I'd be in the audience on, you know, uh, public company conference calls. And, you know, I'd listen to the CEO and CFO kind of talk about how great their quarter was because they had a four or 5% positive surprise and life was wonderful. They made all kinds of, you know, it, all kind. they, they talked glowingly about why they had a four or 5% positive surprise. Uh, and they were, you know, and you could hear them in the background slapping each other on the back and doing high fives. And I, I, you know, I, I, punched in as a question and I said, look, you know, the reality is what's going to keep you from having a four or 5% negative surprise next quarter for the same reasons. They were a little bit dumbfounded. And I said, the reality is that we, you've, you've given us, you know, projections quarter by quarter and we're just looking for you to be predictable. No surprises, no positive surprises and no negative surprises, no surprises at all. And we've, you know, taken that concept and applied it to what we do. And it's just been awesome for our clients. Sure. Sure. Um, what have you found is the, and I, again, I've been out of the space for about a year and a half now and yep. in I guess, corporate IT, and I'm asking because I'm curious and from my own education, what is the, the biggest misconception that you encounter? And if, if it's more than one, you know, what have you found the difference between reality and what's really going on? Uh, I think the reality is that people believe that bad things are never going to happen to them. Um, I mean, they, they, you know, they, and you know, they, we, we've just seen it over and over again, right? People, you know, CEOs don't really think about the negative things that are happening and, you know, because they're so focused on making sure the positive things happen. Um, but the reality is that there's more negative things going to happen than you can possibly imagine. And one of the authors that, uh, that we've worked with Dave Crenshaw has said in one of his recent books that for the first time in history, there's more companies failing than there are starting. Uh, 
Um, and part of that failure is due to the fact that if depending on what happens, if something bad happens, um, it, which it will, you know, it's a, a guarantee it, it it's going to happen. The big question is, you know, how do you protect against it and what do you do to ensure that that bad thing that happens to you does not impact the bottom line or does not impact your business? And, um, you know, that's, it's just, it's, it's going to happen right on the, on the, uh, on the security side of protection side, you know, it's, um, it's, you know, there, there, there's, you know, kind of two types of companies out there that one that knows they've, they've been hacked and have an issue and the other one doesn't. But the reality is that, that, uh, and you know, and it's a question of what's going to happen and, and what, what, uh, what do you say? when you have a problem. Uh, so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that we see. Everyone believes they're by doing the same thing over and over again that they've done for the last, you know, five or 10 or 15 years or however long they've been in business that it's going to work. And the reality is that, it, you know, you know, look at the headlines today. We're, we're in a, a place that you, even two years ago, right? There would be no way that, if you wrote the headlines that you read today in the newspaper, people would have thought you're absolutely crazy. They would have not believed it's possible to have these headlines, and yet here we are. So it's clearly obvious that things have changed. I mean, one of the things I tell my team is is something great, uh, you know, something great and and uh, you know and bad about technology, and that is the fact that te- technology changes every day, right? And so it's oh, yeah. uh, and, and so. Yeah, companies, you know, many CEOs kind of believe that they're all good uh, because they've done because they've done it the same way. But in reality, doing it the same way is going to get you in trouble. And the only question remains is what the trouble looks like and what it's going to cost you. And will it cost you your business? And in many cases, it will. Because the 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 downtime or like what would cause a business to go out based on a technology failure. I mean, you know, for, you know, if you look at everything that, you know, we define technology, everything that has a bitter bite, right? So one of the big issues is that, you know, a lot of companies just don't take their uh, business continuity seriously. They don't, they just don't think about it, right? Um, I mean, the, so I'm sorry. Yeah, business continuity is this concept that if something happens to your business, um, you know, whether it be a fire, a flood, a hurricane, a nor'easter, a storm, uh, or, you know, more recently, you get, you know, all of your data gets encrypted with ransomware. And so ransomware is this idea that, uh, you know, you're one of your employees clicks on a piece of email or a link or website and they download, uh, you know, and they don't know it, right? Because it happens so fast. They download a piece of software that encrypts all of their data. And then is what happens is uh, a, a ransom note is left in each of the, the directories. You know, how do you get your data back? Um, the reality is that, um, the ransom note in some cases works, some cases doesn't, but you're really paying money to a hacker and hoping that they, you get your data back. And so if you don't have your, your from business continuity allows you to make sure that you have your data well protected. And so, you know, that's, um, you know, so that's, you know, and, and that's, that's an honest mistake that an employee can make, right? It's just very tough 
to educate people. And you know, sometimes they just don't connect the dots. It looks, uh, I mean, it looks real legitimate and in reality, it's just not. Um, and so, you know, a lot of companies who, who suffer a catastrophic event, uh, you know, by losing the facility or by having all of the data encrypted and held for ransom, the likelihood of them recovering from that is, uh, you know, not that great, you know, roughly about 70, the stats are 70, 75% of them will go out of business in six months of having that occur. And, uh, and there's just no, if you, if you're not protected for it, there's no, there's no help for it. It's, it's just tough. And so, you know, a company that's been around a hundred years, uh, or even 50 or even a new company that's been around three years, right? If you, you don't have this nailed down, uh, it's just a matter of time before you're going to have a problem and then you recovering from it may, may not be possible. I'm just looking through the spam in my Gmail, my personal account. <clears throat> and you, know, you talk about the, yeah. the, the phishing and the ransomware. I've got, uh, I'm up to like 10 of kind of the same flavor of email saying that um, you have four lost messages from Google or accounts, critical alert for your account, critical alert for your account, um, critical yeah. alert for your account. Uh-huh. You know, reminder, reminder. And it's like, you know, I, I look at it and laugh. Like I'll I'll look at these, I won't click on anything, but it's just some are better than others. And I got there's some fake notifications from FedEx, you know, view your account alert from UPS. And yeah, there's a whole psychology to it. And you know, so like you're talking about like they could lose their payroll or they could lose their accounts payable, their AR, and then just couldn't invoice or couldn't pay. Yeah, is it when you're talking data, is that or, where it goes? Or yeah, or worse yet, right? Or, or worse yet, you might not even <laughs> know who you want. <laughs> right. I mean, people people you owe money to, it's not a problem because eventually they will pipe up and say, "Hey, where's my money?" Yeah. The problem, the bigger problem, is that if you lose the list of people who owe you money, you're just done. There's, you know, short of you remembering it and remembering who owes you what, it's over. It's game over. There's just no other way. Um, And so, you know, in this paperless world, very few companies print out who owes the money. And even if you have it printed out, it's subject to loss. And so that's a big problem. Yeah. I, but even even then, right, is is what you, you like all that stuff that you rattled off right in your Gmail account. The reality is that an employee who is not thinking, or an employee, and some of them are really good. It, it's been, you know, it's it's just unbelievable how good this stuff is, and so and it's designed to get you to click. And so it's amazing that if an employee who doesn't really know or is not really paying attention right, uh, clicks on it, which is not thinking, then you, you run this risk, right? For us, the, and you know, with, uh, we've tested for this, right? The worst case scenario is that on, uh, you know, possible worst case scenario is on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, 
uh, an employee is going to a party and they need to go buy something for the party, go get directions from a website, whatever it is, right? And so they're heading out the door or they, they're just trying to finish up their email. They see something, you know, your account's going to be blocked if you don't do this. They click on it and then, you know, and think the problem's solved. But, and then they, they get their coat on and head for the door at three o'clock, right? On Wednesday to go have a nice Thanksgiving dinner with their family. And then, so they're out and the whole company, you know, and so Thursday's the Thanksgiving holiday. So they're done there. And then, you know, most people take off Friday because and they go shopping. So they're not in the company. And so, uh, and then the weekend exists and then everyone comes in, you know, Monday morning, right. Or depending on the, where the weekend sets Christmas or New Year's, they come in, might come in Tuesday. But by that point, you, is what has occurred is potentially every single file of the company has been encrypted. And it's what's even worse is depending on what they're doing for backup, the backup has nicely done its job, but basically there's been an issue where you've run out of space because all the files have changed or the backup, just the tapes have rotated, whatever it is. And so you're in a position where five or six days after the incident, you have absolutely nothing. Oh God, that sounds and it's All your data is gone. <laughs> Not accessible. Wow. How, how bad is it out there in terms of the, the threat level for you know, small, medium, or even you know, enterprise level businesses? How bad is the, the threat? Right. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually pretty bad, right? It's so easy to get in, I mean, you know, we're part of the FBI team on, you know, that works on cybersecurity. And sometimes when we get to the for conferences, some of us joke about basically going to the dark side because the amount of money hackers make with this stuff is unbelievable. But as what's even more shocking is how easy it is for someone, for a hacker to get uh, to get involved. I mean, if I was a, you know, I, I'm a former hacker and a former virus writer and, you know, <laughs> a while ago, but if I was a, a teenager today, knowing what I knew back then, I would really look seriously about becoming a hacker because it's so easy. And I get some extra pocket money that I can then spend that my parents don't know about. Right. And, you know, wreak some havoc on some company. Right. Or, or any number of different companies. It's so easy uh, to to be, you know, become to go to the dark side and make really good money at it. And so is what we're going to see this year in 2018. One of the big projections is that the the incidence of attacks and incidents of cybersecurity incident is actually going to increase uh, by tenfold what it was in 2017, because it is so profitable and so easy to get into the hacking as a service business for hackers that. Uh, it's just, it's an, you know, if you, if you're, if you're part of the dark side and want to make some extra money, it just becomes a no brainer. And the reality is that a hacker just has to be good once, but a company has to be good, uh, you know, consistently over and over again to prevent this stuff. And that's where we're seeing a problem, right? Companies just aren't as good as they need to be. And it's just evidence over and over again. How, how does that threat translate then to say like the, the individual? So somebody that you know, works at a company, but they have their, a Mac or a laptop at home that they just use for personal stuff. How, how at risk is your, I don't know if the home user is the right term, but does that threat 
transfer over or are they just too small? I know <laughs> it's, it's, that's what's the, 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 the future of security is the smaller, you know, the, this solopreneur, the smaller companies, because as what you have at the, the large company level, the stakes are so high that they're gradually getting their act together. It's taken a while, but they're becoming better about it. Um, you know, last week the SEC released guidance on how public companies need to disclose cybersecurity incidents. And so because they are, because the SEC has mandated disclosure of that as part of SOX, failure to disclose and even potentially a an event, right, that you didn't really know about, right, it may end up potential, we're looking at it and our attorneys are looking at it, but because it's all related to Sarbanes-Oxley may result in jail time for the CEO or CFO who has to sign off on the SEC disclosures. Really? Uh, it's just frightening. So the larger companies are gradually getting their act together. The mid-sized companies are getting their act together again, because they've lost so much uh, and they've spent so much money They're So they, they're eventually, I mean, it, you know, progress is being made on a daily basis, but they're getting their act together. So where the problem is, is the smaller company who, who thinks they can do things the, the way they've done it for, for a while. And then the, this, you know, the, the individual, right? Because those people just, are still under the misconception that they're all good. And the reality is that that's the next frontier for cyber threats. Um, I mean, you've got, you know, just this, just, just recently, um, you know, on the, you know, just recently, you know, smart TVs were caught uh, sending data somewhere else, right? Personal data. And so, you know, the, the home is, is, is you know, the personal data that you have is rife for, you know, for potential threats. Um, and the, the problem is that if your, if your identity is stolen, right, depending on who steals it and what they do with it, it may get a little uncomfortable for you, right? We've, one of our clients, um, it's, um, you know, one of our clients had their identity stolen. It was not, um, it was their husband. So it wasn't, it was the hu husband of a client and luckily it wasn't, it wasn't our client, but the reality is there is another, and I didn't know this, the do not fly list that if your identity is stolen, you get put on that list. Really? And so whenever you go, whenever you travel abroad, you end up with, you know, having to explain yourself, you know, to, um, to, um, it's a border patrol to get back in the country and they're curious about your identity and whether you're the right person. Wow. And so it becomes very uncomfortable. Uh, and it becomes very uncomfortable. You try to get on a plane because they know that you might not, you're essentially and you've stolen. They know you might not be the person that you purport to be. And so it becomes uncomfortable. It's painful. So it's, you know, and so that's what's happening for the S, the smaller business. And that's what's happening to the individual is they're the next frontier and it's time that they get their act together because it's going to be painful. I had no idea about the no fly list that, uh, yeah, those companies should make that known as well. 
Yeah, it's not the no-fly list. It's the list right. It's the list that right under that one. Oh. I had no idea. Okay. Until they said the name was on that. I mean, the no-fly list is clear, right? It's you can't get on a plane. Very, very clear, right? But there's a list that's right under that. That if your identity's stolen and you report it to the FBI or it gets reported, or, you know, to to kind of clear your name. In many cases, you have to report it to law enforcement. So that's the list your name goes on. So you're not on the no-fly list, but it's still uncomfortable for you to fly, for you to leave the country. It's painful uh, because you, all of a sudden everyone knows that you're not the person you say you are. And so you have to you know, go through all kinds of aggravation to prove who you are. Um, it's, it's just, it's frightening. Wow. <clears throat> I didn't even hear about the smart TVs transmitting the data. I don't, I don't have one and I don't really think I want yeah. one, but I didn't know that that's, um, that was a thing. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, companies, I mean, you know, companies are, you know, it used to be companies tried to do the right thing, right. By their customers. And now the competition has gotten so stiff and the competition is, has increased so dramatically that companies are all about making sure that they're saving their own skin. Um, I mean, one of the more, one of the other shocking things was that, when the Tesla three came out, there was a camera in the Tesla three at the center of the console, but it, it, Tesla three came out. It had no mention of the camera, no documentation, nothing. And so security researcher actually kind of realized there was a camera there and called up Tesla and said, you got a camera in your car. What's it for? Tesla said, there's no camera there. Nothing. They denied it. So the security researcher basically took it apart said <laughs> Tesla and say, now we know it's a camera because here's the parts. <laughs> What's it for? Tesla said, we're not telling you. So the reality is that Tesla's got the model three has got a camera that's hidden for which Tesla's not telling you what they're doing with it. So, you know, people think that it's for autonomous driving. People think for it's for, it takes a picture of both the driver passenger and the back seat. So, you know, the fear is that because Tesla's not really being clear about what that's camera for is the part of the fear is that it may be recording information. And so if you're in an accident, you know, that information may be pulled and used against you. Right. Uh, sure. and, and so it's troubling that Tesla's not really disclosing this, um, you know, and it's just frightening. Uh, you know, that's just another example where their consumer is just really being, in my opinion, taken advantage of because, you know, it's, it's not well known. Um, but it just should not, it's, I mean, you know, it should not be, if you're going to have video recorded of you in your car in what is, you know, and potentially sound in what you believe is a private space, you should really know what that data is being used for, right. Or have the ability to turn it off. And so, uh, you know, some people are putting electrical tape over the camera so that it's very clear, but nonetheless, it's real tough. Yeah. Well, I would be ashamed to have Tesla see how much Chick-fil-A I eat. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm not a Uh, a foil hat conspiracy theorist at all, but you know, coming from an engineering and an IT background, you know, with the, the voice recognition for Alexa and Google, 
and you know, those devices are listening. And it, it took me back to this article that onion released the, the satirical website newspaper a couple years ago that said that, um, the onion said that the FBI and CIA were shutting down because everybody just tells Facebook everything. And the, the fake agent was like, we yeah. don't have anything to do. Like we know everything that's going on. People are just telling us what's happening. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah. I, I look at the, the genius of you know, Steve jobs and, and all this other stuff. And I'm just thinking maybe this is just part of the biggest, you know, um, uh, you know, um, security um experiment in the entire world you know surveillance and security experiment hey we got these cool gadgets and games and apps and all this stuff and oh hey by the way it listens and you know yeah it's a fun exercise yeah and i'm not like i said i'm not putting a tinfoil hat on to protect me from the death rays but i just it's an interesting thought exercise from my perspective yeah Absolutely correct, but we're not, we're not either, right? I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but I'm also a realist, right? Mm-hmm. To really understand, yeah. you know, part of it, I, I just want to understand it, right? So I know. Um, when, um, I mean, when I was at the law firm, we, I mean, we collected every piece of data we could, right? And uh, because we use it to uh, to track, to, to, to cost cases, right? And so the more data we had on a legal case, the better it was, right? So we tracked, for example, we tracked entry and exit to the suite, right? At an employee level, right? We tracked inbound, outbound phone calls at an employee level. We tracked uh, every time they opened a file, every time they closed the file, every time they stopped working on a file, we tracked that. So we had all of this data, right, uh, that was all related to a matter and it was all tracked. So one day I got a call from the senior partner saying that on Sunday that there was an incident at the office and asked if I could pull the data, whatever data we had, because he knew we tracked a lot of it. I said, I don't really know. I've never looked at it that way, but let me see. So we had that data, a large amount of data in the database and I pulled it and it terrified me because basically it gave him a minute by minute rundown of exactly what happened, right? We never looked at the data that way. And so it it scared me because I realized that that was the beginning of the future, that all this data sits out there. And so if it's aggregated in some form, it becomes very scary. And so, you know, again, in the United States, uh, PII, you know, personally identifiable information is not, does not contain an IP address, right? Your intellectual, your uh, IP protocol address, which is typically tied to your home or business or something. In in Europe, it is. So it's very easy for large organizations to take all the data it knows about you and attach it to an IP address, and then attach it to an address, and then attach it to an email, and eventually attach it to you. And it's fr- it's terrifying, right? In terms of what can be done with all this information, we're giving so much information to companies to do what they want with uh, that it's it's just frightening. 
and we're just not we're not paying attention to what we're really giving them or, or not not looking at it critically i guess in, in a nutshell it's i mean some of it you know like using a credit card for example it's tracked right you know that but at least understanding that there's some credit you got to look at what you're giving information critical about it you're saying you know should i really have alexa you know sitting around my dining room table so that it's recording you know potentially recording everything i talk about during dinner or should we put it you know in a different room of the house where we're not there as much right or use it differently right uh, as opposed to to just adopt it like crazy. I mean, one of the one of the best commercials, uh, Super Bowl commercials I ever saw, was uh, the early Apple Mac commercial where everyone was walking up a hill and falling off a cliff, and Apple used it to kind of sell Macs. But in reality, that's what we're doing today. We're all just you know walking up a hill, you know, whether it be Alexa or Facebook or whatever it is, and just not looking at it critically and just walking off the cliff. And it's and we may have already passed the point. Hmm. No return. Yeah. There, there's no way to not have a digital footprint, whether you're out there or not. Yeah. And yeah, I've talked to people that aren't on Facebook for that reason, but you know, you're saying emails or you know, texts or anything like that. You're, you're tracked. It doesn't really matter anymore. That's right. Yeah, absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, we we've run across we've we've run across one or two people. It's been very rare who are they're they are cybersecurity hunters. Uh, so is what they are is they're hackers that hunt the hackers. Hmm. And so their story is actually extremely fascinating because they are off grid. They make sure there's no digital footprint, but what they have to do to make sure there's no digital footprint to track them is unbelievable. Like what do they do? What do they, I mean, like for example, they don't, they don't use credit, no credit cards, right? They, they're, they have disposable cell phones, right? So they're constantly changing their number. They have, uh, you know, no real email address. They never really, they, they're always using a proxy server to connect to the internet so that they cannot be tracked, right? So when they try to track a hacker, they want to be make certain that the hacker doesn't know who they are. So they're, they're masking their identity digitally across the board, right? They've created, uh, 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 other identities that they use to keep people you know, off track. So they might go through five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten identities, uh, you know, and keep generating identities so that, you know, again, the hackers who are, uh, you know, who they're tracking are completely off guard when they're finally caught. But it's, it's just, it's, I was just extremely fascinated to talk to this woman um, because it, I did, he didn't even think that there would be people out there who were doing this as a profession and who were just absolutely serious about it. And she absolutely crazy. Yeah. Was, you know, very serious about it and, you know, actually tracking the hackers. And she said the risks are very high. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got, you know, people in other countries who won't hesitate to do physical harm if they figure out where you are and, if you're close to what they're doing and they can figure out where you are and uh, how to get to you, they won't hesitate. It's, it's a frightening world when you cross to the other side. Wow. 
Wow. Well, I remember at, uh, at GTRI, there was a company that came in that we were partnered for their, their services and they were a security firm and they were comprehensive in what they would do. They would do the physical threat. They would do, you know, the, the cyber threat as well. And this one guy, he was like, <laughs> I would love to have this job. He would be the guy that would try to sneak in and gain access. Like that was part of their procedure. He yep. would, you know, whether it was fake ID badges or he'd steal something or, but as part of that whole security assessment and that threat assessment, like he was really like a spy. Like he was right out of oceans 11, you know, doing all this stuff that those guys are doing. Yep. It's like, wow. And yeah, we, have to think like that. Yeah. We, I mean, we, that was one of the things we added this year was doing physical protection, but we have, we have, um, you know, since we started our cybersecurity practice, we use a, uh, a former FBI agent who's retired, who's basically a, he's, he's former law enforcement, but he, we use him to do exactly that. And so he, his job is to figure out whether he can gain physical access to a facility. And, uh, it just, <laughs> so he'll, he'll do, he'll use Facebook. He'll do what he needs to do. When we conduct these tests, he'll do what he needs to do, uh, without breaking the law to figure it out. So for example, you know, some of our clients have on-premise data centers. And so for example, we'll do training, we'll have tons of security and everything in the right place. And then, you know, we'll need to conduct a test, right. To make sure that everything's good. So he'll go in dressed, you know, and he's, he's just a great guy. He's former law enforcement, so he looks official. He he'll come in, kind of. He, he doesn't impersonate anybody because that's against the law. But he'll he'll don like fire chief looking equipment, you know, and and he'll come in and he'll basically say to the client. You know, I'm the fire chief so-and-so and from so-and-so, and it's very important I inspect the fire suppression systems you have and yada, yada, yada. You know, and in some cases, he'll get the information from, you know, social engineering or Facebook. He'll get, we don't give him much because we want it to test, right? We don't want him to, to have the answer. Or he'll get it by just calling, right? And it's just amazing. And so is what happens is when he gets to the on-premise data center, he'll actually give us a call when he's inside saying, hey, I made <laughs> <laughs> and then it's, you know, and then it's, you know, our next call is back to the client going, our guy is on site. He's in the data center. I don't have to tell you, <laughs> you, know, you, you, you got a problem. <laughs> you know, he'll give our client, whoever it was, you know, he'll, you know, after he calls us, he's got our, our car that he gives out at the very end, right? After it's known that that was a test that they failed, he'll give, you know, our client, our car, they'll go, oh, shit. You know, but it, it, it helped us tremendously train the, the, our clients to make sure that there's no surprises, make sure they're well protected. But it's amazing. He says that it is amazing how, you know, unfortunately, we're all very helpful people, which is both good and bad, you know, uh, but, you know, everyone's got to be a little more critical about this stuff, right? The, the way the client, uh, our instructions to the client are that if anyone shows up, doesn't matter who they are and they try to gain access to this part of facility for any reason, doesn't matter what it is that it needs, we need to be called first. 
right? And we have a phone number, a hotline, and we clear it, right? We clear it pretty quick. We do the background check. We check if somebody shows up saying they're the fire marshal, whatever it is, we ask a couple questions, we verify it, and then say you're okay, right? If we're not certain, we'll dispatch and be on site with the person, but we'll, we're going to make sure that we know who they are before they're allowed entry. Um, and so we make, you know, the clients are under, you know, call us, there's a hotline for them to call us. It's cleared very fast, but you know, when our, uh, you know, when our, uh, former law enforcement tester gets there, the client hasn't called anybody. Otherwise we would, you know, the, the client would have passed the test. It's, and I say Ocean's 13 because I just happened to watch the whole series over the past couple of weeks, but it's just, yeah, yeah, it's that attitude and that, um, the presence, right? Probably just, yeah, he looked official and acted the part and, um, that's, (laughs) that just cracks me up. Yeah, he does. I mean, he dresses dresses that way too, right? Again, He's very careful not to impersonate a fire official, right? Because that's breaking the law. But the reality is that people, if you walk in looking like you might be from the fire department, looking like you might be official, people put that in their minds and they say, oh, okay, they don't look at the fine details, right? So the reality is if you take our our law enforcement guy and a fire marshal and put them side by side, you'll pick out the difference pretty fast, mm-hmm. right? Because intentionally we don't want, we want it to be somewhat obvious, but we don't want it to be looking stupid or a dead giveaway. Right. But there's fine details that he doesn't have that a fire marshal would have. Right. And, and you know, one of which is, you know, and many fire marshals carry a badge, which he doesn't have. Right. He'll have, he, he carries a badge. It's not a fire marshal badge. It's a different one. It's definitely fake, but it's from a barbecue joint. It's just, (laughs) yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, but, you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, it's, but people, you know, people kind of don't see the details. They, they just see the overall picture and say, oh, okay, this, this fits. <laughs> wow. It's shocking. It's, I mean, when we get the call and he's, and we know that we know he's, we, we typically give him a week or two to run the test. We don't really know when the test is going to happen, but it's just always shocking. And we, but we, we prepare the client, we work with the client and we're very careful about it. Um, you know, and these, the on-premise data centers have biometrics, they have all kinds of security, it's all logged, but, you know, clearly when someone looking like the fire marshal shows up saying he needs to inspect it, there's a process that the client has gone through to allow somebody on site to have access. And that person just tags along off to go. Years ago, I was uh, in a, <clears throat> a different capacity in the cycling industry, selling uh, jerseys and stuff. And one of my clients was the Children's Hospital and for the Courage Classic ride. And we were doing jerseys for them. And I knew that I was going up to the president's office because it was part of the, the charity side of things. And it was up there in the eighth floor of the children's hospital. And so I, I threw on a tie, even though it was, you know, the cycling industry, I wanted to look presentable and act like I belonged in the presidential you know, area up there. And I'd been there once before and I was escorted that first time I was there. And the second time I had an appointment and I just kept walking 
And because I was friendly and I was dressed up and I made it through four or five badge doors that people opened the door and, or held it open for me. And I ended up at the, the reception desk in the president's office and Julie or whatever her name was, looks up and she goes, Hey Matt, how's it going? And she goes, how did you get up here? <laughs> and I, yeah. I had That's no great. idea I wasn't supposed to be up there. And I acted like yep. I belonged because in a way I kind of did. And I was friendly and I fit in, you know, there's lots of people in uh, business formal attire running around and, uh, <laughs> and she made sure to escort me back down after we were done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if you wouldn't have been Matt, but somebody else who wanted to do harm, yeah. See how at the end of the day, how easy it was. Yeah. Hopefully they, they, uh, they beefed up their security, but it's not just, I mean, I, I was involved in an incident where I was in at the courtyard, the plaza in city hall, Philadelphia. And basically, um, you know, and basically I noticed that there were three black cars driving up, you know, very official looking, uh, tinted windows. Uh, and basically somebody got out and put barricade and I was dressed business, right? Suit, tie, everything looking very official, sunglasses, you know, whole nine yards, right? So basically someone got out and put out put up barricades and I was inside the barricade. So I you know, it was all I said, this is kind of curious. I said, I don't know what's going on, but okay, we'll just, you know, see what happens. And so they let me inside the barricade and you know, kind of basically, you know, I, so finally the, the final car, the secret service got out of the final car, looked at me and said, who the hell are you? And what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just standing here. Right. And they put all barricades around me and the car pulls up and I'm just waiting to see who comes out. The secret service guy said, you know, you need to get behind that barricade. And the person who comes out was Bill Clinton and as he was on the campaign. I just blew me away that every, and I, you know, at least, at least three or four between the police and at least three or four other secret service guys looked at me and said, I must look official. I would just stand in there, right. <laughs> uh, kind of trying to blend in and they just, you know, everybody else, they just shoot away. And I just kept, uh, nobody asked me to leave. So I just stood there. <laughs> said that, you know, I, I have a, a cheap safety vest in my car and I don't know why I found it at Ikea for like $2. And I said that, you know, I could easily go down to the Rockies game and set up a scam and charge people to park because I have a safety vest and I can just act like it's just, yeah, you, you give away that yeah. data or you give away that authority just way too easily. Absolutely correct. Yep. Yeah. Without critically asking, right. It's, you know, all this stuff like Alexa, it's all awesome, right? Don't get me wrong. It's, it's really is awesome, but everyone just should really critically ask. I mean, the, there, you know, um, Mark Zuckerberg, I'll never forget it. Right. Mark Zuckerberg did just a great C or CNBC did an hour long special on Facebook. you right. As it was, as it was, um, getting going. Right. And Mark Zuckerberg appeared 
I'll never forget it. It it was just it was amazing, right? So Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, so he he was CEO of Facebook. In the interview, it looked like he couldn't believe his luck. But is what he said was, as he was starting Facebook, he said it's amazing, right? We started Facebook, and basically people just started giving us all this data without asking questions, without really asking what we're going to do with it. And you know, it's great that people just freely give us this data. So in reality, you know, I, I since they've freely given us this data, we should be able, we should do what we want with it, right? Because they, they've given it to us. And it was just uh, a, a very sobering and terrifying moment because I realized that today, the amount of people that have given Facebook their entire lives is unbelievable. And Facebook believes that they don't have an ethical responsibility to their the data that they've been given because people have freely given it and it's Facebook you know, Zuckerberg believes that he can do what he wants with it. And he's in, he's done that. Um, I mean, it's amazing, right? When you really, you know, one of the things I didn't know until I started digging was that, that Facebook has copyright on everything you give it. And so if you're an artist, for example, and you post a picture of your artwork that you've spent, you know, hundreds of hours doing and it's protected and you're trying to protect it and you decide you're going to post it up to Facebook and share it with your friends. Facebook now has a copyright to that piece of art that you've done. It's just amazing. No kidding. Wow. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Off the crooks. Now they've not exercised the right for it, but the fact they have, they've in their terms of use, they're very clear about it. Which nobody's ever read except for you. <laughs> Well, and that's yeah. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, yeah. That's the challenge, right? They've you know, they've um, yeah. That's that's the problem, right? They're just so freaking big and so onerous and so written by lawyers. Who the frick's going to write read that crap, right? But at the end of the day, there's the fine print there that uh, is a problem. Yeah, absolutely correct. So. Oh, for, uh, for my benefit. And this is one of my favorite stories you've ever told me. If you feel comfortable telling it and you don't have to, but tell me the story about when you, uh, again, in the best way it got gangster. Well, I think you were with the software firm in New York and was it GE where you, um, just left and told them you weren't going to do it. Can you take me through that story? Does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> um, story. yeah, in, yeah, yeah, in a prior, in a, in, <laughs> yeah, in a, in a, uh, in a prior life, I was a CFO of a software company, uh, that sold into the legal space. We were real fortunate in that we had everything come together at the right place at the right time. And so the, uh, but we were working, I mean, we were fortunate that our prospect base was the largest 2000 companies and organizations in the United States. And that was, you know, this is a list of about 2000 and in the country there at the time, there were only, you know, maybe, you know, us plus two other companies that could service those clients. And so typically we, and so the software was, a, it was a legal information system. Uh, so it would handle all of the legal information that an enterprise had uh, at a large scale. So, you know, for example, with, um, with, uh, 
you know, Equifax, right? There's just, they have just enormous amount of litigation as a result of their latest hack. And so the software that we had would take all of the facts and hold it somewhere and, and look for more, right? It, it, it just held a tremendous amount of information. So, um, you know, so when we were, we were, we were working, so a lot of the clients, you know, believe that we were at the time we were out of Concha Hocken. So, you know, people couldn't believe we were, weren't out of New York city or weren't out of Washington DC or weren't out of, you know, San Francisco or some big city, you know, we, you know, and our mailing address was Concha Hocken, you know, so, <laughs> you know, they thought we were just, you know, small guys in the middle of no, they didn't know where Concha Hocken was. They didn't know it was suburb Philadelphia. They had never seen the word before. Didn't know how to spell it. Couldn't write it. It was, you know, <laughs> couldn't say it, right? It was just, you know, so, but they thought, here we go. Here's some country bumpkins who really know nothing from someplace in Pennsylvania that we've never seen before. But the software price was, you know, from a project perspective, it was roughly about a million, million and a half, uh, you know, two billion non-negotiable. Um, because it was just that good. So we, and so, you know, part of my job was to negotiate the contracts on behalf of, uh, you know, behalf of the, uh, on behalf of, uh, the company. And so the thing that happened to us was that we were selling to Marriott and Citibank and, um, you know, every company you'd, you know, AT&T, every company that you'd want to be a client of was a client of ours. Uh, you know, we're real fortunate. Um, General Motors, uh, Chrysler, I'm going to list a long, right? Uh, just so fortunate. And so it typically is what would happen is we would, we had our contracts and we would ask for that to be used, but typically our clients said, no, we, you got to use ours. So one of, one of the, the, one of our clients, uh, you know, large, very, very large New York bank, uh, you know, demanded that we use their contract. And, you know, I said, fine. You know, I, I sent it to our lawyers, they, they are my attorney. And I said, you know, they demand that we use, uh, you know, our, their contract. So our lawyer said, fine, you know, and we have no choice. Uh, so he, so their contract was roughly about 30, 35 pages. And, uh, and, you know, basically, uh, so he, he modified it heavily. And so typically on every single page, there might've, there had to be a hundred or 150 changes, right? It was just modified extensively. So we sent it back up to the, uh, the pro at the time the prospect. And, um, you know, the problem number one is that, <laughs> that they had an attorney working for the CIO, which we knew was kind of strange and not going to work out well. So we sent it up and we were summoned to New York. So, uh, myself and, um, the CEO of the company, you know, um, and the person who was going to do the project went up, got in the train, went up to New York and basically we, we got, you know, they, they thought they were going to work us over by bringing us into this big conference room. So, so basically we had, you know, the client, you know, who was the attorneys, uh, and then sitting at one end of the table was the attorney for the CIO. And we were, you know, he was at the one end we, and I was at the opposite end. And so, uh, you know, my team was on the right side of me and his team was on the other side. So he basically, you know, had a printout of our um, changes and he basically stood up 
<laughs> and flung it down the table and said, you know, we're a big bank from New York and we're not going to take this crap, you know, take <laughs> our contract the <laughs> So I said, you know what? I took his contract. I stood up. I flinged it back at him. I said, you know, we're we're a law manager and we're not taking this crap and we're leaving. And we walked out. <laughs> and so the, the poor attorney, there are clients who were the attorneys, you know, didn't know what to do. So they they realized they better go attack the 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 attorney that reported to the CIO to get this deal done. So they went and as we were leaving, they were busy mugging him at the other end of the table, <laughs> screaming at him for why he basically you know, caused the deal to go south and they had no plan B. So he better figure out how to get it back on draft. <laughs> You know, as fast as possible. So when we got back to our office, you know, he was on the phone apologizing profusely and telling us that he was going to be reasonable about reviewing our changes, and uh, and we would get what we needed to get, and uh, and you know, and that was that. And so you know, so you know, they thought because we were you know, a small company from Conshohocken that they would, that we would just be in awe being called up to New York and sitting in this big conference room in this big skyscraper in this big, you know, it was awesome, you know, quite frankly, but we just, we had intellectual property that we worked hard to protect and we weren't going to let anything stand in the way of that. And, And the software was really, we were fortunate the software was really good. And so we had tons of clients. We didn't necessarily need this particular client. We had, you know, we were, you know, we had another thousand companies like this one that we could call on who were just anxious and couldn't wait to buy our software. We didn't need to deal with this guy. Right. And they didn't quite understand that at the end of the day. But yeah, it's just, you know, I wish, I wish in many cases do now what I knew then I would have, I would have worked prospects over even harder. (laughs) And that my friend is why you're my hero. I love that story. (laughs) And with the highest compliment, gangster bill. I love it. (laughs) But it's, you know, it's, it's what's amazing. And I, you know, is, is what's amazing is the people, you know, people need to learn how to be advocates for themselves, be advocates for their business, be advocates for what they do. Right. And so I was an advocate for the company that I worked for. Right. And, and religious about it. Right. I realized, you know, as we were working with all our clients, I realized pretty easily that if we would have given in to what our prospects wanted, we would have nothing left as a company because they would have taken some small piece of our intellectual property and there'd be nothing left. And, you know, when we, we exited that, we, we did very, very well because I was able to prove that there was a line that was never crossed by any of our clients, right? And it worked out real well. But people have to learn to be advocates for themselves, whether it be security, uh, you know, cybersecurity, protecting themselves and protecting their information and protecting their data or protecting their company, just really, and how to be advocates in a way that's going to get people's attention so that they can, they can, uh, can get what they need to, to do what they need to do. And it's what's, it's amazing in that, 
when you get, you think that a big company can't change or won't change. But the reality is if you push the right buttons, a large company will, will listen to you and be brought to their knees pretty quick. But you really have to be an advocate for your position and know how to get it done. That's uh, amazing insight. Yeah, I'm just pondering that. Yeah, you have to advocate for yourself, for your company, for your product. That's powerful. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, one of our one of our suppliers, right? They they supply technology, and we're we're just, you know, one of the the quotes that we got from our clients is awesome. They basically CEO clients basically sent us a note saying, you know, with this particular issue, we didn't think it could be solved. You guys were like a bulldog to solve it. You know, thank you very much. We're so appreciative to have you on our side, and thank you for being on our side as opposed to against us. So one of our key suppliers, right? It's a, a a well-known uh, hardware supplier had had sent out uh, you know supplied equipment, and across one of our clients, the failure rate was roughly about 125 percent uh, failure rate, right wow. over two years, unbelievable. And so we we worked with the so we started you know the client was pissed off and aggravated they they looked at us to go solve the problem we're looking at this going this is a big company how what are we going to do so we started the process the the you know the the company basically said well you know if it if it powers on or whether it boots or you get to an OS, it's good. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so much to my amazement, they had, and I thought we were actually making progress. They had assigned to me someone who was actually going to resolve our problem. So this just <laughs> team at this large company who was committed to make, you know, when nobody else could make us happy was committed to making us happy and making ultimately, if we were happy, our client was going to be happy. Mm -hmm. So this was the guy, right? So I thought this is awesome. This guy's got the right title. He's assigned to, I don't remember what it was, but it was a fancy dancy title that basically said, we're going to work very hard to make you happy. Okay, great. So he didn't, you know, we spent, you know, two weeks debating about whether the fact there was any type of defect. He didn't understand that, that if, you know, if, if the supplier supplied the, everything together and it, it doesn't boot, there's a problem, right? It's a defect. It, it's, it's, it's problem. doesn't matter. You know, we bought everything from the supplier, right? It doesn't matter what the component was. So we just finally realized we weren't going anywhere, uh, getting anywhere fast. And so, you know, the client was pissed off and aggravated. So I said to the client, I said, you know what? I said, you know, we're, we're just not getting anywhere. So, um, we're going to probably have to figure out how to, uh, how to go get some attention with this large company. So is <laughs> so what I decided to do is I decided to write a one page letter. Um, and, uh, it, you know, basically summarizing the position in, you know, very you know, one page, right. It said on one page, it was, you could read it from a type perspective and basically, um, is, is what we did. I gave it to the client, the client approved it. And is what I did was I used our CRM application and the letter was addressed to the CEO of the company and I tracked down his email address. And, but 
through this whole process and through our entire relationship with the client, I had, or with our, with our supplier, I had about 40 emails of, you know, everybody that we had tracked in our CRM. So what I did was I said to the client, I said, you know what, we're going to have to kind of go gonzo, a little bit gonzo in this. So what we're going to do is we're going to, um, on, uh, it was Monday morning actually, is what I did was I, we sent this out to 40 contacts individually, right? And it was, it was basically, and the CEO. So the email that we sent out was included this letter's attachment and the email was to the CEO. And then it was copied you know, as a courtesy copy to all 40 people. <laughs> and basically it said to the CEO, Hey, you know, we want to give you a heads up. We're, we have this letter that's an open letter to, uh, that we're going to have published. We have a thousand press conference or contacts that we're going to send this out to tomorrow. Um, unless we get some movement on this issue. And, uh, you know, we're really looking for your help to get this resolved. And so we just wanted to give you a courtesy copy of, of the letter so that you were prepared in the event that, uh, that you got interview questions or in the event that the press called and asked you for, uh, questions and issues. So that email went out and, you know, basically about, uh, eight o'clock Monday morning and at about eight thirty, the guy who was responsible for solving our problem was on the phone. And I'm like, he's was aggravated and pissed off. I'm like, the problem is, is that you don't think we have a problem. So thus we have no choice. So roughly about nine fifteen, nine thirty, I get a call from the CEO's secretary and I get passed through the CEO. So basically, you know, I talked to me on the phone for about five, 10 minutes. I said, I said, look, we're not, we're not about causing the aggravation. We just need the problem solved. As long as we get the problem solved, as long as we can move to solve it, we're good. So, uh, he said, you understood. And then, you know, he hung up and then the next call I got was for someone who was going to fly out on a plane immediately. They were getting they were to the airport, getting ready to get on a plane and be <laughs> in Philadelphia the next day to work with the client to replace everything or to fix the problem. I said, look, the reality is that I appreciate it. You don't, it's not that kind of a problem, but he understood he was an engineer and I walked him through everything. He, I said, you know, part of the problem is that your team doesn't believe that we have any failure at all. So that's problem number one, but here's the problem. So I walked through the engineering with him. He said, okay, I get it. Uh, you know, and I said, we just need to see movement on getting this solved. So I said, you know, you know, I appreciate your willingness to come out, but there's no reason to do that. And so basically after some aggravation and gnashing of teeth, by the end of the day, the, the, the supplier agreed to replace all the hardware uh, at this particular client. Um, you know, just to make sure that the client was happy. Um, the client was well known and they didn't want bad press and everyone was just, the client was pissed off. Everyone's pissed off and everyone looked at the, the emblem, the manufacturer's emblem on the piece of hardware and kind of basically, uh, you know, just aggravated about it. So I, I you know, went back to the client. I said, yeah, our, you know, Gonzo tactic worked and they're going to replace everything. And they did. Right. And to their credit, but I was just aggravated that I had to be, you know, we were uh, that type of advocate for a client uh, as to get a large company to actually pay attention, right. To get it fixed as opposed to them, you know, listening to us and doing the right thing when the person who had the great title, who was supposed to do that just didn't. <laughs> 
And I know who the company is. I'm not going to say it. And if the people listening knew just how big this company was and who they were, the story has even more (laughs) credibility with how you operate. (laughs) So it's, it's awesome. (laughs) But what's great about it was that people, they, because we used our CRM, the, the emails went out personally, right? So yeah. it went out to the CEO, went out to individually the 40. So it wasn't like it was a big list, right? So part of this large company spent a good hour through trying to figure out who got copies of the letter because they were just confused. They couldn't figure out, you know, they, they knew how it was sent, obviously because they used technology, but most everybody would have just sent a huge list of 40 and just copied everybody on it, right? I didn't do it that way. We sent it individually, each one. So part of it was, part of the, it was a surprise when no one really knew how to, no one knew who had the letter and who didn't. No one knew who was going to respond. And it, it, there was just no visibility to the company other than the fact that the CEO got it. That was obvious, but no one else <laughs> knew who got it. And so there was a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of ass coverage that went on for about an hour and a half until I finally figured out who had it and who didn't and who needed to get it before we, we got, yeah, before they finally got stuff done. Well, with that, my friend, I want to say thank you for, for taking the time. It's, it's every week. It's something I look forward to talking to you and I definitely wanted to, um, have you on the show for that very reason, just because of your technological expertise, your, your mindset, just cause you're my friend and it's just always an entertaining experience. And, um, tell everybody where we can get in a hold of you from an official capacity, from a business, business relationship, because if you have a business, uh, <laughs> you, sure. you need to have yeah. Lyme systems yep. watching your back. That's right. That's right. Absolutely correct, Matt. And, you know, likewise, yeah, you're just, you're, you're just bringing so much breadth and depth to the conversation. It's been awesome continuing the conversation. It's just been, it's been, it, you know, the, 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 the chat that we do, you know, every Thursday is, you know, the highlight of my week because, yeah, I, I talk to somebody who is well grounded in the realities of trying to, you know, move things forward every day. It's, it's awesome. Well, so, you. um, you know, you I can be reached at uh, Bill at Lime Systems, Lime like the color, S-Y-S-T-E-M-S.com. Or you can feel free to reach me on my direct line, 215-771-2744. It's much better to reach me by email because we have, to, to manage complexity, we have gone to a completely disciplined company. And so we don't take unsolicited calls at all. So typically we like to schedule things. So reaching me by email at bill at limesystems.com allows me to schedule a call and it works out well. You're not surprised. You keep your schedule. We're not surprised. Nobody's interrupted and it works much better. No surprises at all. And it, it's great. It's awesome. I love it. So that's kind of how to get a hold. But again, an emergency, feel free to give me a ring and uh, I'll give you a call back. Nice. And I'll put all that in the, the show notes as well. So people have clickable links to get a hold of you. And, uh, with that, Bill, thank you so much. And, uh, stay on the line for just a second. And, uh, thank you everybody for listening. Yep. Bill Swank from Lime Systems.